Good, we're up and running. Excellent. So last week I told you this is uh, this chapter we're working through. I think is the most important chapter in the book. I was willing to take two weeks to tackle it. I don't know that we'll get through everything I'm prepared for us for this morning, but I really do think this is this is the heart of the whole book. Um, and I, I think in some ways, you know, until we come to Christ Jesus Himself broken, awful world, to come to it and say, I intend to bless. Uh, and, and I begin blessing with this man right here, but I'm going to bless everybody because I blessed this one. Um, so, to jump back into uh, Wright's words, he says, when we combine the dark picture of Genesis 3-11 through 11 with the promise of blessing in chapter 12, we can anticipate that the story to follow will involve both realities. We know that we will be watching two scenarios unfolding together, just as Jesus said in the parable of the wheat and the weeds growing in the same field. On the one hand, we know that the story will be the arena of human sin getting even worse. But on the other hand, we will now be watching for the footprints of God's blessing and looking forward to how he will keep his vast promise to bring about a blessing for all nations through the nation to emerge from the loins of Abraham. Now this... In my words, this is what we call a hermeneutical grid. He never calls it that. Uh, hermeneutics is the art of reading a text. Okay? And so uh, the best hermeneutics read with the author's intent in mind. Postmodern hermeneutics tend to tear that down and to treat authorial intent as though it's unreachable and irrelevant. You take the words and you make them mean what you want them to mean. You infuse them with your own power. I think that is insanity. Good hermeneutics reads to say, okay, given the author's culture and context and and what that person was experiencing and the experience of the people who would have first read the text, what did the author intend to say? That's hermeneutics. It's the art of reading a text. And a hermeneutical grid is a way of reading that helps us to understand, this, this is a way of understanding the whole Bible, looking at this doctrine of mission. And to be honest with you, I think it's actually a whole lot broader than just the doctrine of mission. I think this is the way of reading the Bible that helps us to actually read the Bible well. You know, that, that this is what the Bible is intended to be about. So it's a, and, and when we read this way, suddenly God becomes a good guy. One of the things I've trained people in before is that there are two ways of reading the Bible. One of the things that Jesus is doing in his ministry In the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, he spends an entire chapter, Matthew chapter 5, is about how do you read the law? Who gets to read and interpret the law? And what he's actually doing there is he's arguing. You remember he says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, but I say to you. And he's not arguing with the text. He's arguing with what does that text mean? Right? I think there are two big ways of reading Scripture. One is Adam's perspective and one is Christ's perspective. And when we read from Adam's perspective, God is a bad guy that we ought to run from. And throughout the scripture, you can point to the points where there's trouble between God and man and say, look what God did. He was kind of a meanie. And there's this whole read of the Old Testament where people say, you know what? God in the Old Testament was kind of a jerk, but Jesus is really a nice guy. that's, That's Adam's read. Adam reads the Bible and sees meanie God. You know, who God really wants to beat you up, but... He accidentally beat up Jesus instead, and and so you can hide behind him and you'll be all right. 
abusive father that has to beat up one of the kids, so he beats up him. Right? Christ's read of the Bible is entirely different. It looks at the Bible and says there's going to be human sin all the way through this, and so we should expect to see a lot of disaster. And some of that disaster will be points where humanity rubs against God in their brokenness and shatter against his goodness, and they end up dying because of their, their interaction with a good God. That's not what God wants. And when you read looking for God, you will see the very best person in the Bible over and over and over again. He's always good. When you read that way, you're reading the way that Christ will teach you to read. This, that's what J.H. Wright has done right here. He's put in front of us and said, okay, from the very beginning, let's read Christ's way. And let's read it watching things unfold and all the sin of humanity being awful and terrible. And so, Nadab and Abihu, that's not showing you who God is. That's showing you who humanity is. Ananias and Sapphira, that's not showing you who God is. That's showing you who humanity is. Okay? So you're going to see the unfolding of human sin and all of its tragic consequence and all the terrible mess. That's going to be there, and you should anticipate that. But also, the desire to bless and keep and save and, and the relentless unwillingness to give up, that's going to be there. Watch for God in that, and you'll understand God better, you'll understand yourself better, and you'll see your mission. That, honestly, is two paragraphs in this wonderful chapter, but I thought it was so important I was willing to take five minutes and do that with you. Any comments on that before we move on? Yes, sir. There are some scholars that don't. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So scholarship starting in in the late 17 and early 1800s made movements towards what's become known as classical liberalism. And classical liberalism is heavily influenced by Descartes' radical doubt. Uh, Descartes literally doubted everything and used doubt as a way to find his way back to absolute truth by identifying himself. Have you ever heard Descartes' thing, uh, I think, therefore I am? I I finally encounter thinking, and someone must be doing this thinking, so I've proven that that's true, and from that he rebuilds his whole world. Did you ever hear about Descartes goes into a coffee shop, and he orders a coffee, and the person says, do you want a croissant with that? And he says, I think not, and then he vanishes. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) sorry, that one was free. Um, But what what you're dealing with there is the folks that want to say, okay, well, these are all mythologies, and, you know, there are stories that a culture tells that the historic... Some of you getting it? You're just getting it? There you go. Yeah, I think not. I think, therefore, I am, but I think not. And then, boom. Uh, but that, that radical doubt um, was seen to be something that was really smart. You know, the smartest people did this radical doubt stuff. Um, But one of the things that we run into in Scripture is you always have to interpret. But archaeology almost always supports Scripture. And I say almost because there are some findings that are like, well, that's a little weird. I'm not sure how to explain that one. But you 
you run into the archaeological proofs like no one could have gotten into that into Jerusalem, and then they find in an archaeological dig the well that's described that they they climbed up. You're like, well, once again, you know, and that happens over and over and over again, such that you start to think maybe this thing is historically accurate. So, do people do that with Abraham? Absolutely. There's an entire philosophy that suggests that Abraham was a mythological creature, didn't ever really exist. Moses is even considered to be mythological, and we have a lot of his writing. But they'll say, okay, well, some of that might go back to Moses, but how could the humblest man who ever lived write that he was the humblest man who ever lived? Isn't that an act of a lack of humility to write that down? You know, and they see other people's hands in it, and clearly this is actually written by four different authors, and you get that kind of gobbledygook. Um, honestly, I, that, you know what? That would be a fascinating class for us to go deep into, to look at, okay, well, how did we get where we are in scholarship? I will shorthand it by saying an awful lot of scholarship is written to impress other scholars, and you, you get to an awful lot of insanity that way. You know, the, I uh, had a, one of my professors tell me that at a Society of Biblical Literature meeting, there was a panel discussion going on, and one of them said, you know, I've really come to the conclusion that we're really not trying to figure out what is true, but what is interesting. And one of the other people on the panel said, well, if that's true, then none of this is interesting to me. Um, and that's where modern scholarship, especially... All those seeds have led us to postmodernism, which is intellectual insanity. You know, it self-devours. You know, it says it's absolutely true that there's no such thing as absolute truth, which is itself an absolute truth statement. Well, yeah, a little before him. You know, he's a man of his times, but he's probably the most powerful voice for that. Um, I'm not prepared necessarily to do the survey of all that modern scholarship and how it comes about, but you end up with, you know, how can you possibly believe in miracle and electrical lighting at the same time? And I want to say, what do those things possibly have to do with one another? The natural order and the supernatural, they don't overlap. Why are you talking about this? But Schleimacher makes that argument. There can't be a resurrection because we have light bulbs. That, that's craziness. You know? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think, okay. Absolutely. Well said, Paul. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, okay, so if you live in a world where serious inquiry and asking questions is forbidden, then you can never grow. You know? No, I know it's not. I, and I'm about to go to the other side of things. But that, I think that's important because churches will often shut down inquiry and will be places where you're not allowed to explore because, you know, and that's actually part of the nature of the church is to preserve the faith once handed on. So it preserves traditions, and one of the ways it does that is it gets a little dicey when people start to ask questions of the tradition and say, are we sure we understood it correctly 100 years ago? 
maybe we need to revisit something. You know, let's ask a question about that. That's, that's a, uh, uh, both a strength and a potential weakness. But on the other hand, the kind of radical questioning that lands in a place of, of eternal and universal doubt that says there is no truth, that is deadly. You know, God is truth. Jesus says you'll know the truth and by it you'll be free. So if you, if you deny there's such a thing as truth, you are denying your means of escape from sin and death. The only way out is the search for truth. You know, the only way out is to encounter the truth and have him encounter you. You know, so I, I completely agree. The, the loss of a belief in any solid ground, very dangerous thing. You know, and our culture has embraced it whole hog. And it's why you get to the place where, you know, well, I get to have my own truth. You know, whatever it is, if I want to identify as a 65 Asian female, you have to call me that. What? No. There's realities. I don't get to identify as 65. Because I'm not. You know, there's truth. There's reality. There's, you know, and... We're at a place where our culture is embraced. Believe what you want. Be what you want. Whoever you say you are, I have to be that with you. And it's, it's very dangerous. It's dangerous to human identity. And it's so destructive. Yes, ma'am. I've seen your hand a couple of times. I'd love to be known as that. <laughs> yeah. Except for that stuff that whoever wrote. <laughs> yes, that was that, and that's very fundamentalist America. In an awful lot of American homes in the in the 1800s, you would have a copy of Pilgrim's Progress and the King James Bible and that's the only books you had. Absolutely, yeah, because I feel like we're possibly wandering a bit afield from Abraham. Um, but I think this has been a good discussion. Uh, Mark, wrap us up and we'll, we'll jump back into this. Yeah, and, and you know, the thing is, okay, so I don't think God would ever deny people that. The rich young ruler walked away and Jesus let him go. Okay, so the rich young ruler had the liberty to define what was real and what was important and good and true. He just did a terrible job of it. He decided that the physical world and the physical goods and the pleasures and the blessings that come from having a lot of wealth that's what's real and good. That's what's most real. And this other stuff, this ethereal stuff that you could have if you got rid of all that, can't possibly be as real as this stuff that's tangible and touchable. Okay, so he, Kennedy's onto something. Where he's made a mistake, maybe, I don't know, I'd have to read the broader context, but that each individual person has the liberty to make those own assessments. 
They do not impose that reality on the world, though. The world continues to be what it is, no matter what I think about it, or, or how I feel, or what reality I want. And you're either going to like, come into line with reality, or you're going to break yourself on it. You know, the rich young ruler broke himself. You know, why do that? One of, the things, one of the reasons we come here is that Word of God helps us to realign our lives such that we come into alignment with reality. That's our goal. So, okay. Let's jump back into Abraham. We may have to do a third week on this chapter. Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on. It says, the bottom line of the Abrahamic covenant is that all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Uh, that's the, the bottom line in the covenant, like the last words of the covenant. And it's also, this is what the whole thing is about. This is where we're going, right? In fact, it's so emphatic that this promise is repeated five times in Genesis. Now, in Hebrew language, there's no such thing as a superlative. A superlative is good, better, best. Best is a superlative. Hebrew has no superlative. So if you want to make something state it superlatively, you repeat it. Okay? So in this narrative... And, and really, to get to superlative, you repeat it three times. That's enough. God repeats five. Okay? Let's, let's look at them. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the big one, that, the first time it said, Genesis 12.3. But then in 18.18, this is God talking to himself about, do I reveal my plans to Abraham before I go down to Sodom, and he says, seeing, you know, shouldn't I tell him this? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So this is God reminding himself before he carries out destruction and judgment on Sodom, hey, remember, this is the plan. And then in Genesis 22, 18, and in your, your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's just after Isaac is delivered. You know, he's got the knife, and there's a ram in the thicket, you know, and he says, because you obeyed me, this covenant's moving forward, and that's the last word of that, you know, because all the nations shall be blessed. So three times to Abraham, then once to Isaac, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then it goes on to say, because Abraham obeyed my voice. So the blessing is going into his son because of the obedience of Abraham. Think about that the next time you're wondering whether your sin matters. You know, it matters a lot to your kids. Okay? And then to Jacob, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the east and to the west and the north and the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Okay? So five times... And across generations, God is seeing to it that people understand this is the plan to provide blessing to the world. And through this family, there is a universal end in view. If humanity as a whole is subject to God's curse, then humanity as a whole must be reached by God's blessing. And therein lies the great thrust of God's mission and the mission of God's people. Okay? So this is how we ought to understand what we are to be about. And you notice 
that there is kind of a collapse in the question of, well, should we be about social action and acts of love and justice and caring for the poor, or should we be about evangelism? Does it bless people? And we should be doing it. Notice how that, that, whole, that whole argument just falls apart in the face of this. Okay? So, does this seem to be an adequate summary of the concept of the mission of God and God's people? What do you think? Let's think about it for a second. Notice that this is fountainhead stuff. This is the beginning. So, this thing will take on layers like a growing onion as we go. And we're going to see a lot more stuff involved in the mission. But notice that at the center of it all is this concept of blessing. Do you think blessing is an adequate concept to describe mission? What do you think? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, in fairness to them, a couple of things in fairness to them, this read becomes a whole lot easier to do once you see what Messiah Jesus did. You know, when he commissions, go out and evangelize all the nations, make disciples of all nations, leading them into this blessed way of life. Then reading all the way back to Abraham comes to make a whole lot more sense. Until you see that, it's easy to read and primarily focus on, I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you. I will curse. Oh, God, anyone who curses me is God's enemy. You know, that's Adam's read. You know? um, the other thing I would say is, how often does the church lose sight of its missional obligations, its missional imperatives? Exactly. I think that's the big reason the whole story gets told. So that we can see those two realities walking side by side. Inside of us, there is the brokenness and the mess of Adam, and it's still in us. And that turns us in, it pulls us away from mission, it pulls us away from wanting to be a blessing to anybody. It makes us self-protect, it makes us want it to be our way and, and let me be happy and me be satisfied and me be content. And that's what I want from my religious life and my secular life and my money life and all that. And then at the same time, walking hand in hand with that are the people who love God and honor God and are walking with God and their lives are marked by the desire to bless and be good it opens up wellsprings of charity within people. It leads them to, to not just throw money at problems, but to love people who are stuck in problems and love them out of those problems, even though it hurts and you've got you've to suffer with them and cry beside them. But if you're going to be a blessing to them, you're going to get down and get dirty where they are. You know, Adam's way is going to keep you clean. It's dissatisfactory to get messy with somebody else. But if I'm going to have to bless somebody, I might have to step into a ditch. I might have to get filth all over me and count on Jesus to keep me clean. Help me to stay whole even as I'm hurting beside this crying, broken person. You see both of them walking side by side. And you're absolutely right. Humanity moves towards Adam. It's Christ that calls us towards God. And only He'll be able to do it. But if we listen, He lifts us up so that we live missional lives. But you're right, you see it all the way through the Bible. You see these rare heroes of faith who clearly know their lives and what they're for. And then you see over and over again the people chasing after Baal. 
You see, it echoes all the way through the Scripture. The, the brokenness of humanity, even within Israel, the intended vehicle of blessing, and the beauty of God, they're always there together. Well, so the idea of resurrecting the mission, that's so good. Absolutely. That is what the resurrection accomplishes. Because the mission loses in the cross. The opportunity to bless the world is done in the death of Jesus. At least for a couple days. When the resurrection happens, suddenly the, the cross itself is transformed. And everything that was lost is refound. Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's move on. Um, We've got about 15 minutes. I don't, we're not getting through everything, but that's okay. Uh, in Churches of Christ, we don't spend tons of time worrying over the concept of election. We don't talk about election. That's a real Baptisty doctrine, right? You know, but it's a biblical concept. You're going to run into that word in the scriptures. You know, the elect who will bring any charge against God's elect. Okay. So its abuse keeps us away from it, but I think J.H. Wright gives us, Christopher J.H. Wright gives us a much healthier concept of election that I can embrace wholeheartedly. Um, so let's, let's spend a little bit of time looking at that. He says, but the same text that ends with such universality begins in singular particularity. So it ends with that you're going to be a blessing to all the nations, but it's a call to you, one man. God addresses one man, Abraham, and promises to bring his blessings to humanity through one nation, his descendants. In Genesis 12, 1-3, we stand at the fountainhead of the Old Testament Israel's self-consciousness of being God's elect people. Okay? Uh, that is, they believed that they were a people uniquely chosen by God for a relationship with himself that would later be consolidated, and that should be consummated, I think, in the form of the Sinai Covenant. Okay, so they are the chosen people, right? And the church then becomes the chosen, right? Chosen from all nations, okay? But it is utterly crucial to see that this divine election of one man and one people takes place in the context of, and on the global stage of, God's dealing with all the nations who have been the main focus of the narrative in chapters 10 and 11. So chapters 10 and 11, we're not looking at one nation. We're looking at all the world and how very broken it is, how selfish and interned it is, and how it's trying to pull together, and it ends up dispersed and under the, the scattering of languages and just the mess. It's all the nations. And then suddenly we're looking at one man. Right? So it's utterly crucial to see that one nation is chosen, but all nations are to be the beneficiaries of that choice. The effects of the way, this affects the way we understand the whole biblical doctrine of election. So there is a tendency to speak of it solely as a doctrine of salvation. And that arises mostly from Calvin. Okay, are you familiar with John Calvin and his teachings about predestination and that the election process is the elect are elected to be saved? Well, we end up with that being the understanding of election for about the last 500 years. Okay? That all the debate has been centered that. That is to say, the elect are those who get saved. But the first time we see God choosing, 
and calling someone, i.e. putting election into action. It is precisely not so that Abraham and his family alone get saved, but rather that by being blessed, he should become the agent of blessing to others. Now that's crucial. That's huge. Election is never for the sake of the elect alone. That being chosen by Christ, being called into into relationship with God through Christ, is for your good, but never for your good alone. We are never meant to be Dead Sea people where the, the water comes into us and then ends. It's always meant to flow out. We are called in to go out. So election is always for the sake of others. If we are speaking of being chosen, of being among God's elect, it is to say that, like Abraham, we are chosen for the sake of God's plan that the nations of the world come to enjoy the blessing of Abraham. That's the reason you were chosen. That's the reason you're a Christian. It's to be a participant in God's plan to bless all nations. Okay? The church then, that multinational community that includes believing Jews and Gentiles, is the people chosen and called in Abraham to be God's people. If we are in Christ, we not only share in the blessing of Abraham, we are commissioned to spread the blessing of Abraham. And in fact, if that's not who we are, are we certain that we're in the blessing of Abraham? If other people coming into contact with us don't leave those contacts better off than they came, and of course, we're all going to fail. We've all got Adam in us. There are going to be times when you blow it, you know, and people go away from you with a horrible story. But shouldn't this be the overwhelming emphasis of our lives? That everywhere we go, we are spreading the blessing of Abraham. So let's reflect on this together. How do these thoughts shape our mission and our place in God's plan among, in the chosen people? If the church is the chosen people, then for what purpose were we chosen? Why did he choose you? Why did he want you in this thing? And part of it is that he wants you because he wants you, right? You have individual value. And to what are you called? What's the purpose he's got for you once you're here? It's okay if that's mostly a thought question. And let me just say this. Questions like that are often meant to stir guilt in people. You know, because guilt will motivate you to mission. You feel bad, you want to do something else. So, you know, and especially people who are... uh, Oh, when you spend time among the poor, there's a, a kind of, uh, of missional weight that that takes on. And uh, sometimes people who spend time among the lost or among the hurting or among the poor will look at those who aren't doing that. And there's a thing called incretism where you begin to judge the people who aren't doing this and begin to judge God for his failures to do something about the poverty and all that. And it's a real danger of mission push. It's not our purpose here. It's honestly, guilt and shame are agents of sin. Okay, that's the work of the devil in us. I don't think that's a good motivator for mission anyway. The good motivation for mission is the beauty of God. Wonder and the, the beauty and the love and the holiness of God. 
When we focus on that, our hearts are lifted up, not torn down. We end up with something wonderful to share. Yes, ma'am. Say that again, please. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. The incarceration. In incarceration. Yes. We are to be the gospel incarnate, the gospel in flesh. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, really, when people come into contact with the precepts of God, doesn't your life get better when you come into contact with it? You know, when you come into contact with the wonder, the beauty, the love, and the holiness of God, isn't that what's shaping you into a better person? If we are that in the flesh, walking around, then people who come into contact with us ought to come into contact with something that, that convicts them, inspires them, and draws them into a better life because you're in their life. Yes. And we are now in Christ, and so the incarnation continues through the church. Absolutely. I think I saw your hand, and I know I see yours. Yes. Yes, at the heart of the church's mission is love. If there's anything other than that there, you know, if if it's reason or rationality or doctrinal purity, you know, realize the Pharisees had doctrinal purity down. They were better at it than us. But they killed the Messiah because that was the heart of their mission. That was the absolute center. You know, and the, the reason they're pursuing that is a view of God that he's not very loving. You know, he loves those who behave well enough. Christ's view of God is very different from that. And what we're called into is to his kind of love to be at the center. Absolutely at the center. These other things, they belong in there, but they don't belong in the middle. And the thing that drives is love because love blesses. Love always blesses. Yes, sir. I actually lean towards that for that very reason. That's exactly why. Because God doesn't do it on on the basis of human merit at all. The fountainhead of our salvation obliterates the idea that I deserve any of this. You know, the very start point doesn't make sense. God loving me doesn't make any sense either. 
I know who I am. I know good and well who I am. And being willing to invite me into the gospel way of life, he shouldn't. It doesn't make sense. And if there's some merit in Abraham that starts the whole thing, then merit in the human person is required. And, and so if you find meritless people, and you'll find a ton of meritless people, many of them very rich, their lives very together for God. You know, I mean, this looks like they're great. They're real jerks. You know, and you'll find many meritless poor who have been so wounded that where is the good here? They don't make room for it anymore because they, they're afraid to. They can't. I mean, human being, in fact, I would suggest human life is meritless without the love of God. And I do think the randomness of this one selection. I have a friend who said that he thinks that God actually called to many. The story begins with Abraham because Abraham listened. That's all Abraham did was he submitted. He was willing to hear. And he's like, I'm not sure if he called anybody else before, but I think it makes sense. And in Babel, he would call and call and call and call, and finally the thing begins because somebody goes, okay, I'll leave. Um, but now I may be wrong, you know, and, and I'd, I'd love to hear it. So you want there to be some merit on Abraham's part? Yeah, both of the men you just mentioned are people who would identify themselves as worst of sinners. You know, that, that in terms of merit, they've got no ground. Moses is murderer, so is Paul. You know, and so in, but they have these phenomenal beauties about them. That's the nature of the fall. It strips us of anything that's worth anything, even while all this great and beautiful stuff remains in us. We have wonderful, beautiful gifts from God, and when God redeems us, He redeems those gifts. But we also have sin, which totally fractures every aspect of our being. Our ability to reason, our ability to love. Everything is replaced by selfishness. I mean, we are entirely marred by sin, all the way down. So there's never merit where I can say, well, but I've done enough good that I'm worthy of the choice. And they were all unworthy. It's got nothing to do with us. It's all God. God's great and unbelievable and nearly unbearable love. That's what rescues the sinner. Like me. Yeah, and I mean, I, I hope the rest of you do. I don't need that, but I... <laughs> kidding. Joking. My wife hates that joke. I just... <laughs> Yeah, but in fairness, in Paul's case, I think he had to be humiliated. You know, he had to be knocked off a horse. Literally. 
you know, on a road, knocked to the ground. I don't know whether he was on a horse or not. I doubt he was. I bet he was walking. But still, knocked to the ground. You know, and even after that, he would do things like, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, when he's in front of the Sanhedrin. That's not real humble. <laughs> you know, and in fact, a moment later, he's apologizing. I didn't know that was the high priest. I would have shown respect. Uh, I, I'm sorry? Yeah. Yeah, the hero in the story... That's absolutely right. The hero in the story is always, 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 always God. Always God. He's always the beautiful one. And His beauty shows up in the human persons as they're redeemed, as they're faithful. You know, so David is admirable because he's faithful. You know, and when he's not faithful, he's not admirable. You know, remember that man, his blood-soaked hands? You know, Moses is a beautiful man when he's faithful. But when he's smacking rocks he should have talked to, that's not admirable. You know, I mean, it's even Abraham. Abraham, what did he do? You know, have no fear, I am your shield. You know, your reward shall be very great. Very next chapter, yeah, that's my sister. You know, he just told him, I'm your shield. I'm your protector. You're going to be fine. Could anything happen to him? No. He was absolutely safe, but he self-protects anyway. All of them. Self-protection. Yeah, the only person who never does that is Jesus. He's the only person in the whole Scripture, and I think all of humanity, who doesn't have self-protection. Absolutely. Yeah. But this is, a, this is a thorny one, and I don't want to be entirely... I, I've just spent a long time kind of jumping up and down, maybe on you, Mark, and I haven't intended to. Um, there's a long line of argument that Abraham had some merit. You'll find that in a lot of Jewish sources. Um, that, and especially the, when the focus goes from the calling of Abraham to the, the Mount Sinai moment with Abraham, with Abraham and Isaac. You know, that moment with Abraham, where do you put your focus? Abraham's obedience or God's unmerited call? You know, and and the folks who put the emphasis on Abraham's obedience say that God saw the obedient heart of Abraham before he demonstrated it and called him because he was obedient. The people who put the emphasis on the unmerited call say Abraham became obedient because God welcomed him into his presence. And God inspired his obedience. A life with God from that point on prepared him for the mountain. You know, and and it's, that's actually a heavily debated question. Um, so I don't want to treat that like it's trivial because it's actually a really good question. It's really good. Yes. That's absolutely right. Yeah, and... To my mind, the question is, how? And the text doesn't focus on that. You know, but how does he become righteous? How does the, how, why is the guy at the Bethsaida pool like he is, and the guy, and the blind man, you know, John 5, John 9? What's the difference between those two men? You know, because one is in turn broken and awful and turn, tries to turn Jesus over to authorities. And the other one stands before the authorities and says, I don't know whether he's a prophet or not, but I know this. I was blind and I can see now. What's the difference? 
know, that I would suggest is a lifetime of holiness, a lifetime with God and God's holiness growing up in them. You know, if Abraham had merit, I would suggest that came from God. Uh, every good thing in me does. Okay, so we're five minutes long. I want to ask really quickly. Do we, I've got about another half of a lesson here, um, and there's some pretty good stuff in it. Do we want to do that, or do we want to move on? Uh, do we want a third, chap, third time in this chapter, or do we want to move to the next chapter? Uh, let's see, show of hands. Should we finish this lesson? Okay, that's, that's what we'll do. Uh, next week, uh, I think... And I'll expand it and try and involve more of that scripture um, because the, I think the next thing that I've got here is that, yeah, he talks about, oh, no, no, it's not. But he has this long scriptural study. Do that study. It's pages, I think, 73 through 77. Read through that stuff. And if you come having read that, it, our, our discussion might be richer and deeper and fuller. So um, we'll do that next week.